knows better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, in the Bible, you have some epic battle scenes, some epic battles between different people. Probably the most famous one for uh, those who know the Bible or even who those who don't really know the Bible is the uh, epic battle of David versus Goliath. And, you know, we love that battle because we have a giant with all his armor versus this little shepherd boy with no armor. And, you know, you would think that there, there's no way that David would ever have a chance. You know, the odds are so stacked against him that he he could, you know, defeat this giant. And not only does he defeat him, he defeats him just with a stone and a sling. And, you know, but the the story is really not that accurate oftentimes as we think of it or as we describe it, because the odds are actually greatly in David's favor. Actually, the odds are pretty much 100% that he's going to win. Why? Because it's not Goliath versus David. It's Goliath versus David and the God of David. Uh, and when you take the God of David versus Goliath, even though Goliath is a giant among men, he is up against the creator of men, the creator of heaven and earth. And so, you know, there really was no chance for Goliath to gain victory when ultimately the battle is between him and God. And so we see a very similar epic battle, one of my favorites in Scripture uh, that we're going to start looking at tonight. It's the battle ultimately between God and Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. Uh, and so we're going to start this battle, and it's going to be amazing. And just like God used David as you know, ultimately the man that he used to defeat Goliath, he's going to be using Moses as his mouthpiece. Moses is the man that he does miracles through. But sometimes we think it's a battle between Moses and Pharaoh, but that's not accurate at all. It's a battle between God and Pharaoh. And not just Pharaoh, as we're going to see, but also the false gods of Egypt that they worship. And you're going to see something very interesting with the plagues that God brings upon uh, the Egyptians. And you think, you know, why these particular plagues? And I find it very interesting that these plagues, you know, really come against the gods of Egypt that they worship. And you're showing that God says, hey, I have all the power here. You worship this thing. And yet, look at this. I have a plague hitting you with it. And so it's not just Pharaoh and God, but it is the false gods that the Egyptians worship that God is going to reveal who really has power, who really is true, who really is the one who uh, is real in all of this. And so this is a, a really long section. It's one of the, the you know focal points here of Exodus. We're starting in chapter 5. The battle is going to continue all the way to chapter 14, uh, and then we'll see some pretty uh, significant conclusions to that. So God dedicates 10 chapters uh, to this. And, you know, this is something that there's a lot we can learn because it's not just, you know, looking at how God, you know, what he does. We'll, we'll definitely learn of the power of God. We're going to see a lot about him in this. Uh, but we're also going to see a lot about Pharaoh. 
about his hardness, about the, the false gods of Egypt and how, you know, that they are false, they're pathetic, they're nothing, that they can't do anything because they don't really exist. But we're also going to see Moses and, and how he responds to a lot of these things. We're going to see the nation of Israel, how they respond to this. We're going to see the Egyptians who suffered the most through this and how they respond. And so within this battle and all that's going on, you know, this is a elongated thing. It's not just a stone being flung and then a dead giant. You know, we have this long period of time with 10 plagues and all these things going on within it. Uh, and so with each person that's involved, uh, there's a lot that we can learn. Uh, and so tonight we're going to start this battle with our first encounter, the first time that God has Moses and Aaron stand before Pharaoh and pose the demand of God to him. We're going to see how Pharaoh responds, how that impacts the Israelites, how that impacts Moses, and what we can learn from it. So Exodus chapter 5, starting in verse 1, says this, Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest He fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. So remember last chapter, the end of chapter 4, we see that Moses and Aaron, they come to the elders of Israel and they share the good news. Hey, God has heard your plea. He's heard your cry. We are here to deliver you. God is going to use us to deliver you. And then Moses does the two miracles. He takes the staff, turns it into a snake, takes his hand, turns it into leprous, and then back to a normal hand again. And they're blown away and it's like, oh, wow. God is going to do this. And they worship the Lord. They're excited about what's going to happen. But, you know, that was the first thing that Moses was afraid of. Will the Israelites receive this? Will they believe that God has sent me? Will, will, will they accept me as their deliverer? And the answer was yes. God already told them that. But now Moses has experienced it. But, you know, this is a group of people that wanted this. They were crying out for this. So, you know, you would expect them to be excited. Now we come to the real difficult person. The one who's not going to want to, you know, give in to God's demand, and that is Pharaoh. And so Moses and Aaron have just got done sharing with the nation of Israel, and now they come for the first time to give the demand that God has given them to Pharaoh. And what they say to Pharaoh would have been quite bold. And I want you to kind of understand Pharaoh and his power and his rule and things about him because I'm sure that Pharaoh probably never had many demands made of him. They say, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go. You know, each Pharaoh was said to be the child of the sun, that they worshipped the sun god Ra, that they actually believed that Pharaoh was a god. Uh, and so he's not some, you know, elected official. He's not some public servant. He's not someone who's there for the people. He's there for the people to serve him. He's not there to serve the people. They, they view him as God. You know, what he says, what he does, it all is, it, hey, whatever I want goes. Uh, and so recognize this is the kind of power this man has. He's not just seen as a king. 
He's seen beyond that. He's seen as literally a God. Uh, and so, you know, he has supreme power. There is no constitution. There is no law higher than him. If he wants to do something like kill all the boys and have them thrown, or all the babies and thrown them in the river like he does, then they're going to do it. You know, whatever he wants, this is what he gets. There's actually an inscription by a pharaoh on an ancient Egyptian temple. It gives kind of an idea of how they felt about themselves. When translated, it says, I am that which was and is and shall be, and no man has lifted my veil. You know, this is something that you would think would come from someone who felt that they were a god, and that is what Pharaoh and all the pharaohs felt like because, you know, they, they believed we were more than men. You know, and the people of Egypt believed there you're more than a man. You are a god. And they were worshipped and they were followed as God. And I bring that up because I'm sure that he was not accustomed to people demanding of him. You know, you know, he would demand of others, but people wouldn't bring demands to him. You know, they would bring requests to him. They would, oh, Pharaoh, please let us do this or that. But, but people wouldn't say, hey, we have a demand. Our God says, let these people go and you better do it. So this would have been something very new to him. And I want you to picture because Moses, he spent 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the palace, he knew that pharaohs were worshipped. He knew how pharaohs would feel. So he recognizes, he comes to this guy that, hey, this isn't going to re- be received very well, most likely, but he still boldly comes, knowing that ultimately who's on his side is greater than pharaoh. Uh, and, you know, we get a response from pharaoh that you would probably expect, and so he gets this demand, let the people of Israel go, and notice how he responds to the, the demand. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So I want you to try to imagine this response from Pharaoh, especially in light of what I just shared about, you know, hey, he thinks he's a god, you know, he's the, the, the supreme ruler here. He doesn't even know who this Lord of the Israelites is. Like, who is this God you're talking about? Maybe if you came to me and said, hey, the sun god Ra tells me, let these Israelites go, I might take you serious. I might actually, you know, consider this demand of you, but I don't know this God. You know, so why should I obey what he tells me to do? I'm a God. I'm great. I'm the Pharaoh of Egypt. And so, you know, you can see how he would just kind of blow this off. He's only going to respond to a demand to some Someone that he feels is greater than him, greater authority than he, and which would only be in his mind a God. Now, the reality is a God, the only true God, is making a demand of him who does have authority, who does have power. But Pharaoh's problem is he doesn't know that God. He doesn't actually know who's making this demand of him. He doesn't know who he is dealing with. And so he kind of blows it off with like... Who is this God? Why would I listen to him? Why would I obey him? Well, he's going to learn who this God is. He's going to learn the power of this God, and he's going to learn why he should obey him as well. You know, the response that we see here from Pharaoh is just very common in the world today. When people hear about what God says or what he commands of them, you know, a lot of times the response is the same thing. Well, who is this God? 
You know, who is this Christian God? Why should I obey Him? Why should I believe that what He determines is sinful or what He determines is right and wrong is true? Well, why should I listen to that and accept that and, and live my life based on that? I mean, our culture, you know, asks that question all the time. You know, we, why should I, you know, look at that and, and redetermine what I view as sinful or right? You know, just because you Christians tell me it's wrong. Um, you know, that they ask these questions and it's it's not until people have God revealed to them that they see who He is, that they see the power that He has, that they see what He's done, that they come to a different place. Not this place of like, why in the world should I ever obey that you know, belief system or that God that you hold to? I'm not listening to Him. And then they get to a place where they realize He's true. He's powerful. And hopefully they realize, and He sacrificed Himself for me, and all of a sudden it brings them to a place of obedience. So this world is just like Pharaoh was, where they are in desperate need of a revelation of God. And they're not going to obey Him until they see that, until they understand that, until they're aware of who ultimately is making these demands of them. And you know, God, He has made it real clear Pharaoh is without excuse. Everybody in our culture with, without excuse. People are like, well, you know, how am I supposed to know who God is? And, and how is that person who lives out in, you know, some village in Africa who hasn't had a missionary come to him? How are they going to know that there's a God? Well, the book of Romans tells us that God has revealed himself. Romans chapter one, verses 18 through 20 says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What Romans is making very clear is that creation, all that God has created, speaks volumes. It's speaking loud and clear that there is a creator, that there is a designer, and so that no one is going to be able to stand before God and use the excuse of, I didn't know you existed. I didn't know you were real. God said, no, no, no. My invisible attributes, they are clearly seen in all that I have created. Now, the problem with our culture today is they want to believe in things that will wipe that away, that will deny that. And that's why evolution is so damaging because they're wanting to say, hey, there, there, there's no God. You know, all this that you see is, is pointing to a big bang. It's not pointing to a designer. It's not pointing to a creator. And so the desire is to let's, you know, kind of wipe that away. That's not what this is revealing because they do not want to be answerable to a God. So God clearly revealed Himself through creation, but yet that just kind of gives you an idea that there is a God, that there is a designer, that there is a creator, but it doesn't give you the details that are necessary for salvation. It doesn't tell you about Jesus. It doesn't tell you about what He did for us on the cross. And this is where God then takes it a step further and He uses people like you. He uses people like me. He uses someone like Moses to be His mouthpiece to go and declare His message to people. The Bible calls us ambassadors for Christ, that we are the light of the world, that we're the salt of the earth, that we ultimately have a responsibility to represent Christ, a responsibility to be that person who reveals Him to this world. Because people are not going to accept God. They're not going to obey God. They're not going to ultimately ask for His forgiveness until they know who He is. They know what He's done. 
They know, you know, the sacrifice he made on their behalf. And that's why Paul goes on in Romans 10, 13 through 15 to tell us something very important. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how should they believe in him in whom they've not heard? And how should they hear without a preacher? And how should they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. You know, Paul's bringing up this, as, you know, brings out different questions. Okay, yeah, people need to hear about Jesus or they're never going to accept him. They're not going to know him. They're not going to know what he's done. They're not going to know what to do. So they need to hear that. But how are they going to hear unless someone is willing to go preach that message to them? And how beautiful it is when people are willing to come and proclaim the good news of what Jesus has done. So since Pharaoh doesn't know who God is, he's not going to obey God and let the Israelites go. So notice that Moses and Aaron have a response to his rejection to their demand. They say this, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest He fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Now, I think it's interesting to note here, you know, normally when we think of this story, we just kind of think of Moses saying, let my people go, and Pharaoh saying no. But actually, it's starting with something very simple. They're only asking for a three-day journey to go worship, to go sacrifice to God. That's the the first thing, and God actually, back in uh, chapter 3, that's all he tells Moses to say initially. In verses um, verse 18 of chapter 3, it says, you shall say to him, speaking of Pharaoh, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So this was always God's plan. I wanted to give Pharaoh the opportunity to accept something small before I give something big. Because the big one is going to be let them go forever. But first, we're just going to ask for three days. All I'm wanting is three days' journey for us to go and worship God in the wilderness, and I believe that God's doing this to just test Pharaoh's heart. You know, with this small request, are you willing to let it happen? Three days, not a big deal. Are you willing to let them go and and worship me for that time or not? And we find that he's not even willing to do three days, much less forever. But um, there's also a warning in this request. After they share this, hey, please let us go, you know, Our God has come to us. He's told us this is what He desires of us. Please let it happen, lest He fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Pharaoh, you know what? If you don't let us go and do what our God has asked, there's going to be consequences. If we don't obey Him, if you don't allow this to happen, He's coming to bring consequences And now Pharaoh's probably like, ooh, like I really care. I am God. Who is this God? I don't know him. What power does he have? He's soon going to find out not to mess with this God. Verse 4. Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor So the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters and the people and their officers saying, you shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. 
You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on the men, that they may labor in it, and let them not regard false words. So Pharaoh's response to Moses and Aaron, you know, they ask, he says no, they bring this added response of please let us do this, lest the judgment of God come. And he says, you know what guys, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. So notice that Pharaoh not only rejects the, you know, offer or demand of, hey, you know what, we want three days to go worship God. No, that's never going to happen. And he adds to that. Not only that, obviously you guys got too much time on your hands. You must be idle and lazy. I mean, if you need three days to go worship, then you need more work. You got too much time. And so this is what we're going to do. From now on, all that straw that we provide so that you can make bricks and build all the things that we're going to have you build, we're not going to provide that straw anymore. You're going to go find it yourself. And guess what? The quota of bricks that you got to make every day, it's not going to go down. So you go find that straw, you still make as many bricks as you did before. I'm going to give you more work. So notice this, that Pharaoh thought that the reason the people wanted to go and worship the Lord is that they are lazy, they're idle. And to fix the problem, more work. Why? To keep them from listening to Moses and ultimately to God who gave the message. You know, the world is full of people like Pharaoh who think worshiping God is a waste of time, who think what we're doing tonight is a waste of time. They try to get us to do something else with our time. Oftentimes, work, work, work is maybe something that is, you know, the way to, you know, sidetrack us from what is more important. But you know, there's a person in the Bible at two different times, they're worshiping Jesus and they're rebuked for it. Mary, whose sister is Martha, whose brother is Lazarus. We see one time that she brings in John chapter 12 this very costly oil of spikenard. She breaks it. She pours it over Jesus as an act of worship. And Judas rebukes her. Oh, we could have sold that. It sounds like such a great thing. And we could have given it to the poor, but we're told that he had the money and he just wanted to keep that money for himself. So he wasn't really sincere in that. But he's giving a rebuke. You know, why would you break this and waste this on Jesus? And Jesus rebukes Judas and ultimately reveals that she has done this for my burial. She actually got it. When Jesus said he was going to die and the disciples were like, what? She understood. And she put this on him because she realized what was happening because you would use this on someone who has died and was going to be buried, and she did this for him. And Jesus says, you know what? Whenever the gospel is preached, this act of worship is going to be remembered. But you know, we have another time, the same woman. Jesus is at her house. The disciples are with him. She's sitting at Jesus' feet. She's just wanting to glean from him, to learn from him. And her sister Martha is doing all the work. She's serving everybody, and Martha's getting upset, and she's mad at Mary. Mary, you better get over here and help me serve all these men in our house. What's going on? And Martha even comes to Jesus, complains to Jesus, why don't you make Mary get up from sitting at your feet and come help me serve? And Jesus responds with, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. 
Mary chose what's best to sit at my feet. You want to distract her with work, but I'm not going to make her go do that because what's most important is worshiping me. And so I think Mary is a great example of someone who saw the importance of worshiping God, saw the importance of sitting at her, his feet, but she also was someone who was rebuked by it, who had people in her life who tried to you know, stop her from that, hinder her from that, you know, oh, don't do this. But Jesus shares something very important. Worshiping God, sitting at his feet, learning from him is the best way we can spend our time. The world who's full of Judases and Marthas and Pharaohs who, who want to tell us, no, that's not the way you should spend your time. You should do this instead. You should do that instead. You know, they want to convince us that tonight's a waste. You know, you could be using your time so much better and we have to recognize, no, it's not. This is the best way we can spend our time. This is the best way we can invest in our relationship with the Lord. Pharaoh tells these people they're idle, but worshiping God's never idleness. It's never a waste of time. It's something that we are in desperate need of. So Pharaoh is not willing to let the Israelites leave for three days. And to get them to even stop with this, he just makes them work all the more by no longer offering them straw. Notice what happens in verse 10. And the taskmasters of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get yourself straw where you can find it. Yet none of your work will be reduced. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt and gathered stubble instead of straw. And the taskmasters forced them to hurry saying, Fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. Also the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick, both yesterday and today as before? Now I want you to notice something here. Before Moses and Aaron come with this demand to Pharaoh... The nation of Israel had it bad. They're slaves. They're making bricks every day. They're building stuff for the Egyptians. But now it's actually worse because at least the Egyptians provided the straw. Now they don't have straw anymore. So now they got to spend even more time in the day going out and try to find straw so that they can make these bricks. And they got to make the same amount of bricks as they did before. And guess what? They don't make the same amount of bricks. And so what happens? They start getting beaten. Why aren't you making the quota that you're supposed to make? Well, we, we don't have straw. That's not an excuse. And they'll just beat them. And so they're in a much worse situation. And I find this interesting because God sent Moses to confront Pharaoh, to give this demand to Pharaoh, which is ultimately going to lead to the deliverance of the nation of Israel. But the immediate effect of what Moses did made it worse for Israel, not better. Initially, things get worse. We know the end of the story. We know it's going to turn out good. But initially, things get worse for them. And I'm sure that Moses and the elders of Israel, when they just at the end of last chapter heard God's going to deliver, I'm sure they weren't thinking, well, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Oh, it's going to be great when it finally happens. But, you know, we know that things are going to get pretty bad beforehand. I'm sure they're thinking, great, finally. Things are going to improve. We're finally going to get out of here. John Chap wrote, Things commonly go backward with the saints before they come forward. 
I don't know if you have experienced this in your life. I know that I have many times where before God does some big work in me personally or through me, you know, I always can look back and so often I see there's a large attack, a lot of difficulty where it seems like, man, I've just taken a huge step backwards, so to speak. Things are much harder, much more difficult. And then all of a sudden after that, I see, wow, look at the work that the Lord has done. And this is kind of a pattern that we often see. Why? Because we have an enemy. Why? Because we have someone who doesn't want to see the work of God succeed. And when he sees God doing something to bring freedom, he's like, man, we got to do everything we get, we can to re-enslave them, to beat them down, to keep them where they're at. And so sometimes, you know, we're thinking, what's going on? Why are all this is happening? And yet oftentimes that's a sign that great things are in store in the future. And so the Israelites, they're in a very difficult situation. And now notice who they cry out to. Verse 15, Then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why are you dealing thus with your servants? There's no straw given to your servants. And they say to us, Make brick. And indeed your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, idle. Therefore you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore go now and work, for no straw shall be given you yet you shall deliver the quota of bricks. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said, you shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. So the Israelites are faced with this difficult situation. I mean, they already had a bad situation, but now it's worse because they're not given any straw. And that's not the bad part. The bad part is the quota is the same. You want us to make the same amount of bricks, but you don't give us the straw to do it. So we got to go find the straw, and that takes a portion of the day to do it. And so we don't have enough time to finish and make the same amount of bricks. They're in a bad situation. They're getting beaten when they don't fulfill their quota. But notice the first person that they cry out to. The first person that they come to in the midst of this difficulty. We're told the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh. Notice what they get from Pharaoh. Nothing. They did a hard-hearted, unsympathetic response. You guys are idle. You're idle, and there's not going to be any change. I'm not going to release the quota. You're going to make the same quota you did before, and no, you are not getting any straw. So the children of Israel find no relief from their burdens by going to Pharaoh. He doesn't give them anything. Now, I can sympathize why they'd want to go with it to him, why they'd want to you know, plead before him. He's the one who established this new law of the fact that they have to find their own straw, and it would make sense to them to think, all right, we need to come to him and plead to him and say, hey, this isn't fair, we can't do this, and, and hopefully you know, he will grant us what we like. But you know, they made a grave mistake, a mistake that we often make as well. Not that they came to Pharaoh. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is that was the first person they came to. That was the first one that they cried out to. When the situation got bad, they run to Pharaoh first, hoping that he can change the situation, hoping that he can do something to ease the burden, hoping that he can do something to make it less, even though he's the one who made it worse to begin with. The first person they should have cried out to was God. That's who they should have come to. That's the one who said, I'm going to deliver you. That's the one that they should be looking to. That's the one that we should always first and foremost go to. It's not wrong to be, you know, trying to, you know, 
influence, you know, leaders like a pharaoh or, or, you know, come to other people for help. But ultimately, that should be secondary. And too often, that's not the case for us. We're like the Israelites where we have a situation that comes and it's difficult. And instead of first going to the Lord in prayer, instead of first coming to God, who's the one who can ultimately meet our need, we go to family, we go to friends, we go to neighbors, we go to politicians, we go to whomever. When first and foremost, we should come to the Lord. Because He's the one who ultimately can always meet every need we're going to go through. And I'm sure that you have discovered what the Israelites discovered when they went to Pharaoh. There was no help. There was no sympathy. There was nothing that He gave that they wanted. And sadly, that's oftentimes the case. Not always the case, but you know, when we come to people... And we're hoping, yes, they're going to come through for me. They're going to help me get through this. They're going to give me what I need. And so often the case is no. Sometimes it's because they don't even have what we need. Even if they want to offer it, even if they love us, even if they're family, even if they're the family of Christ, they're like, I wish I could give this to you, but I don't have it in myself. Only God does. And then there are other people who, you know, they're just like Pharaoh. They don't even care about you. Maybe they do have it in their power to practically help you, but they're not willing And so we need to be recognizing that the first person always should be the Lord. You know, a great line in the song, what a friend we have in Jesus, is, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. You know, I think there's so much truth to this song. that There's so much peace that we forfeit. Why? Because we don't come to God who gives us the peace that surpasses understanding. And so we miss out on peace because we're not willing to come to the Prince of Peace. We have a lot of pain that we suffer as well because we don't take everything to God in prayer. And so as the Israelites, they cry out to Pharaoh. doesn't go well for them. They don't change his mind. They don't do anything to relieve the situation, and they just leave the meeting recognized we're in trouble. We still have to do the same quota of bricks, and we got no straw. This is not good. And now as they leave this meeting with Pharaoh, they're going to encounter Moses and Aaron. And let's see what happens. Verse 20. Then as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them. And they said to them, Let the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. So after the children of Israel meet with Pharaoh, things don't go well. They see Moses and they see Aaron. And notice what they're saying. Hey, let the Lord judge you guys, because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of of Pharaoh and his servants. You basically put a sword in their hand to kill us. So look at what the Israelites are doing. Now they blame Moses for what's happening to them. Moses, it's your fault. You've made us abhorrent in the sight of not only Pharaoh, but also the Egyptians. And I find this a little bit humorous because they maybe don't really recognize how the Egyptians see them how Pharaoh sees them. Uh, Don't forget that you are slaves, that you've been abhorrent for a long time, that the Egyptians abhor you, that Pharaoh abhors you. That's why you are slaves by force. It's not something that you have chosen to be. It's something that is forced upon you. They don't like you. 
They've always abhorred you. This isn't something that's new. It's not like, oh, they really loved you and then Moses came with this demand and all of a sudden everything turned bad for you. But this is the way that way they respond. They think, oh, Moses, it's all your fault. Letting When Moses came and demanded Pharaoh let them go, that just revealed more of what Pharaoh felt all along. It just brought it out. Pharaoh always abhorred them, always felt this way, but now that there is this demand that they should be free to go for three days, his true colors just come through. And I think we see an interesting parallel in our own lives as believers. You know, oftentimes Satan and the world, they, they don't seem to abhor us. Oftentimes they, they seem to, you know, be fine with us. But it's not until we come to an understanding of freedom in Christ. We accept Christ, or even as believers, when we start to recognize what He can do to free us from the things that we have struggled with, with Satan, with the world, all of a sudden we see this change in the way that they view us, this change in the way that they come after us, this change in the persecution from them. And nothing's really changed. They've always felt that way. They've always believed that. They've always looked upon us. But now all of a sudden when they realize we have freedom, that we can separate ourselves from them, there is the true colors that start coming out from them towards us. We shouldn't be surprised when the world abhors us because we follow Jesus. Another thing I think is interesting to note here is look how quickly the attitude of worship that the Israelites had towards God has changed. Remember at the end of last chapter, chapter 4, verse 31 So the people believed. This is when Moses told them, hey, God's coming to deliver. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that He looked on their affliction, they bowed down their heads and worshipped. Between that moment and this moment, it's only been a few days. And notice the change. They worship the Lord. They're so excited about this news. And they go from that to where they are now. The worship's gone. The complaining's there. Moses, you've made us abhorrent. It's all your fault. And it's kind of an interesting, quick change because their situation has gotten bad. And I think this is something we're often guilty of as well. It's easy to have joy. It's easy to worship the Lord when things are going well. And like, oh God, you're so wonderful. You gave me this new job. Oh God, you're so great. This wonderful thing's happening. And we worship when we hear good news or we experience some blessing from the Lord. And oh, it's so wonderful. God, you're so wonderful. And then all of a sudden, something negative happens. Something difficult comes. And our tune changes so quickly. Where we go from worship to complaining. From like, I was yesterday thanking you so much, where how dare you, God, allow this into my life? And, you know, what's going on here? And it's just kind of a sad reality of we kind of miss so much. So things go from bad. For the Israelites, they start blaming Moses. They complain. Well, now Moses hears all this, and let's see how he responds to the complaints that he's been given, that he's now the bad guy, the cause of this. Verse 22. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you've sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. So Moses does what what the Israelites should have done. Notice he gets the complaint. 
the first person he goes to to cry out to is God. So this is, a, this is a good thing that we see from Moses. This is what the Israelites should have done. When they had the issues, the first person they should have come to was God. But what we see in Moses' prayer, or really his complaint to God, reveals some things about Moses, reveals some ignorance or forgetfulness uh, in Moses. And notice what he says, Lord, why have you brought this trouble on this people? Why is it you sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, neither have you delivered your people at all. You know, it seems like Moses was expecting to come to Pharaoh to say, let the people go, and then Pharaoh would be like, okay, pack up your stuff, guys, go ahead, you're free to go, everything's great. I mean, it seems like Moses was expecting this simple, easy, I'm going to just say what God says, and God, you're going to deliver everybody like you said. But yet, God made very clear to Moses, that's not how it's going to work. And so this is kind of what's interesting to me of why are you so upset? Well, why, why did you expect that to happen? Back in chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, notice this. But I am sure, this is God speaking to Moses, that the king of Egypt will not let you go, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst. And after that, he'll let you go. So God has made very clear to Moses, hey, when you go, the Israelites, they're going to accept you because I know you're struggling with that. But you know what? When you get to Pharaoh, he's not going to let you go right away. Actually, it's going to take a mighty, miraculous move. My mighty hand is going to have to strike Egypt, and it's not until I do that that he'll let you go. Well, Moses knows that hasn't happened yet. So why is it like, Lord, why haven't you delivered them? Why are things going bad? Why is Pharaoh saying, no, I don't get it? Well, what do you mean you don't get it? He told you this was going to happen. And so he's either not remembering this, or he's just being you know, ignorant to the reality of what God has already told him. You know, And I think this is something that we're often guilty of as well. We question what God is doing. We get upset with what God is doing when God has already revealed in His Word that these things were going to transpire, that these are things that we needed to be aware of, that this is something that was just going to come into our life. And we're thinking... How do you allow this, Lord? What is going on? You know, for example, God gives us a lot of warnings about the battle that we're in. That we're facing an enemy who roars around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He says, put on the whole armor of God so we can defend ourselves against the attacks of this enemy that we're fighting. But, you know, sometimes like Moses, we think, well, life's going to be easy. We're not going to get attacked. We're not in a battle. Nothing bad's going to happen to us. And then all of a sudden it does. The attacks come. Lord, what's going on? Why have you allowed this? Why is it that they're not responding the way that I thought they would? How come they're being mean to me? What's going on here? And God's saying, wait a second. I've made very clear in my word that we're in a battle. I've made clear that these things would transpire, that you need to be aware of this, that you're going to be fighting through this. And so you're just either ignorant and never knew this, or you're forgetful, and you just only wanted to remember the things that sound good, and you kind of forget the things that maybe you don't want to take on board, like this reality that you're in. 
But you know what? The best way to get past this, the best way to not be forgetful, ignorant to the truths of God's Word is to regularly study it. And I bring in that regularly because we can be forgetful. Well, I studied that 10 years ago. Well, that's fine. You probably don't remember most of it. When you're regularly in the Word, you continue to have the promises. You continue to have the truths come before you. And so when you face these things, you're much more likely to be realizing, hey, no, I understand what's happening. I know that I'm expecting this. I know life's not a bed of roses. I know that when I follow Jesus, difficulty will come. There'll be persecution. I have a battle with an enemy that's trying to destroy me. I get that. And that the only time that it's going to be peaceful and wonderful and nice is you know, ultimately when I'm with Christ in glory. And so I'm not going to respond with, oh my goodness, Lord, what are you doing? But it comes through that continual time in the Word to realize what the Word tells us. So at the start of this epic battle, which is going to continue for many more chapters, we start with a hardness to Pharaoh. He starts off not willing even to let the Israelites go just for a three-day journey. Go out, worship the Lord in the wilderness. No way, I'm not going to have that. And I'm so hard-hearted that you would even ask such a question. I'm going to make you work way more than you already have. No more straw for you. Same quota of bricks. Maybe now you won't waste your time with this notion of worshiping your God. And the Israelites respond to this new difficult situation with first running to Pharaoh, crying out to him, hoping that he can fix their problem instead of first coming to the Lord. And Pharaoh doesn't fix their problem. He just continues the problem that he is the one who established. And then they move from that to blaming Moses. You're the one who's made as abhorrent, according to Pharaoh. And then Moses responds to their complaint by coming to the Lord, but wondering, Lord, why haven't you delivered them? Why isn't you know, everything all easy and nice? Even though God has already made clear that's not the way it was going to be. But you know, if we just left it here, which we will tonight, it'd be kind of sad, but we come into chapter 6, God in His grace, He could just have rebuked Moses. Hey Moses, remember what I said to you? Well, I don't understand why you're complaining to me. I told you how it was going to be. But God's going to spend the first half of chapter 6 not only bringing comfort to Moses, but bringing comfort to the Israelites, reminding them of who He is, reminding them of what He promised He will do, and reminding Moses of, you know, this isn't going to be a quick overnight deliverance but I will do what I said I would do. Um, And he's going to help them in this place that they're at where, oh, they go from elation and worship, oh, God's going to do it, to rejection from Pharaoh. Their workload increases, and they're thinking, man, we were better off before you got here, Moses. But God's going to help them see, no, you're going to be better off when I ultimately deliver you from this slavery. But it's a process, and as we continue through this, there'll be many things that we can learn with it. So, Any thoughts?